This morning we're sort of in uh, Matthew 1, verse 1. Um, After those really long texts in Ezra, you're probably relieved that uh, we have a lot of short texts here for Advent. Uh, We're actually going to spend most of our time in Genesis and in uh, Galatians 3, which is why Jerry read those. He did all the heavy lifting for me this morning, so uh, that's a good thing. Uh, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray. Lord, may you grant that we may engage in contemplating the mysteries of this heavenly wisdom with an increasing devotion to his glory and to our edification. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Being born and raised in New England, one of the things that you tend to associate with Christmas, one of those things that kind of lets you know it's coming, is snow. Okay? No, it's snow. But now, I've spent the majority of my life in warmer climes. I moved to Florida, and then here to southern Arizona, and if I'm waiting for snow to feel like it's Christmas, I'm in for a long wait. Christmas will never come, okay? And so as I was thinking about this, I realized how is it that I sort of feel like Christmas is coming, that it's, it's almost here, and this reveals something about myself, and that it doesn't really feel like Christmas until I hear the voice of Boris Karloff singing, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. And maybe Mike will play that later today, and I'll feel like it's Christmas uh, before uh, I end up watching the D- I think I have the DVD at home. But the, the, the story of how the Grinch stole Christmas has always been sort of... Um, meaningful to me even before I was a Christian because of of something that happens within the context of this story. And it's, it's captured in that phrase, in the heart of the Grinch grew two sizes that day. There was something about Christmas in the story that changed the Grinch profoundly. Christmas is meant to change us profoundly. No, not the green stuff on the walls and the gifts under the tree and all of that stuff, but the reason for this season, Christ and his advent was intended to change people profoundly. And we heard about Abraham initially, and we saw how God changed him profoundly when he was 75. So, if you're an older person, don't worry, there's hope for you yet, right? Um, Not everyone has to convert to God at an early age like the statistics seem to indicate. It can happen. So the focus this morning is on Christ as the son of Abraham, who went from being an unbelieving man to what Paul says, the man of faith. Jesus does that. 
The big idea is that Jesus brings the promise of Abraham to us. And so let's start with the reality that God promised to bless the nations through Abraham. And as we see in this this one sentence that begins uh, Matthew's gospel, the focus of Matthew is going to be how Jesus fulfills the covenants to David and to Abraham. I picked Abraham this week. Next week you're going to hear about David from uh, Luke Smith, since I'm otherwise occupied um, with some medical issues with Eli. Um, Luke's going to join us, and he's going to bring God's word to us on Jesus, the son of David. And so we're going to focus on Jesus, the son of Abraham. And what in the world does Matthew mean when he talks about this? Let's go back. Let's hit rewind on all of this and go back to Genesis. And let's remember that God initially appeared to an unbelieving Abram, that was his name at the time, and with what I would call a sleigh load of promises that the Grinch could not steal. And so what happens here is that this call of God that Abram receives in the latter years of his life means that he, by faith, would leave everything that he knew. He was called to leave country. He was called to leave kindred. He was called to leave his father's house. And he was leaving all of this for the great unknown. Because God said, to the place I will show you. He didn't know where he was going. And, and there are some ways in which this is almost a leap in the dark because he does not really have much experience with this God who has revealed himself to Abram. And he does not know where this God is going to send him. And so faith was a great leap for this man. But we see that this faith was strengthened by a number of promises in Genesis chapter 12. We see that he is told that he would become a great nation, which was a little surprising since he's 75 and has no children. And his wife is not much younger either. They are infertile. And so this, in a sense, sounds like an impossible promise that God has made to Abram. Not only that, he says, I'm going to give you a great name, a great reputation. You're going to become a great person, indicated by the fact that we're still talking about him thousands of years later. Okay, But what I want to focus on is that he's also, because he is blessed... He is going to become a blessing to the nations. And so God does not just have in mind this idea of, I'm going to be nice to you, Abram, and that's it. But I'm going to be nice to you, Abram, because ultimately I am going to be nice or good to humanity in general. It's going to start with your family, but I'm going to expand it and explode it up into something far more glorious than you could ever imagine someday. This is promise. We notice that uh, there is, at this point, no commands given aside from leave. 
Okay. And I want to, uh, at this point, kind of draw a distinction between life by grace and life by law. Okay. And I'm going to characterize it this way. Eli, you and I are going to see Star Wars on Thursday. Did you know that? Yeah. Are you excited about that? Yeah. Okay. That's grace. Okay. Because he doesn't deserve necessarily to go see Star Wars. All right. He's going because he's my son and I love him. All right. If this were law, I would say, Eli, we are going to see Star Wars if, if you clean your room. If you make your bed. Now, that's an easy one for you because Eli is awesome at making his bed. Okay. If you do all your schoolwork, if I lay out a series of conditions that he must do in order to receive the promise, then he would be living by law. But since I have given no conditions, so to speak, it is free grace to my son that he gets to see the movie that he wants to see because every time... The few times he's watching TV, because he doesn't watch much TV, but that comes on at Star Wars. Want to see Star Wars. God gives this promise without condition. This is reaffirmed in chapter 15 where God makes the covenant, and instead of requiring Abraham to walk between the the, uh, torn apart animal, God himself walks between the torn apart animal and says, I'm the one who's going to fulfill this promise. It's not you, Abraham, who's going to fulfill this promise. Eleazar of Damascus is not going to be your heir. I am going to give you one. It is in that context in chapter 15, as we have saw when we looked at Romans 4 a few, months, a few months ago, that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so Abraham's life was characterized by living by faith, by believing that what God said he would do, God would actually do. And this was credited to him as righteousness so that he was able to live in the presence of God. So how is it that Abraham, or Abram at this point, could be a blessing? Well, we need to fast forward, you know, up to Genesis 17, and we go ahead almost 25 years because the text says that now Abram is 99. And so for 24 years, this guy who left everything, has been waiting on God to fulfill the promise of an heir, and it hasn't happened yet. He has a son, but God informs him that this child that he had by Hagar, his wife's nursemaid, is not going to be the one through whom he's going to build Abraham's family line that there is going to be a child from Sarah. And so he makes this covenant. He gives a sign of circumcision. But the, the main part of this is my covenant between me and you and your offspring. We see the multi-generational characteristic of this covenant that's going to be repeated. 
This covenant I'm making, in other words, Abraham, is not going to be just with you, but I'm making this covenant with your offspring. And what is, what is it that he's promising here? What is the blessing that I think is really at the core of all of this? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's not about land, although they got land. It's not about wealth, although he had wealth and was given wealth. The main thing, the main blessing was that I will be God to you and you will be my people and I will be God to your offspring after you and they will be my people. That is the blessing that God offered to Abraham and that is the blessing that God was going to give to the Gentiles through Abraham. That they, though they worshipped false gods like Abram used to, are eventually going to worship the true God like Abraham did. We see this as well in the promises of the new covenant, perhaps uh, you know, in Jeremiah 31 and 32, for instance, uh, 31, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Jeremiah 32, which often gets overlooked, for 31, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children or offspring after them. A multi-generational characteristic of the covenant made with Abraham continues in the new covenant. And so the, the blessing that is given to the Gentiles is that they will also be brought into his people by faith, that they will now have God, the Lord God as their God, and they will be his people. And so God promised Abraham salvation by faith for his offspring, but also for the Gentiles. So let's move on back to Matthew. Let's see that Jesus fulfills the promise of Abraham. Remember, because uh, there's a reason why Matthew begins with this. And so Matthew and his gospel focuses on Gentiles. There is a focus on Jesus' interaction with Gentiles, and we see Gentiles coming to faith. And the reason why of these things, because uh, you know, there's lots that Matthew could have said that he didn't say. There are lots of events that happened that Matthew didn't write about in his gospel. So why did he choose these things? Because he wants to remind us, not only is he the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham, and that the gospel is now going to be given to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. But let us keep this in mind from Philippians 2. Like Abram... 
The eternal son left his country, left his kindred, left his father's house to accomplish this. He is, in that sense, very much like Abraham. Also like Abraham, he had to live by faith. Now, I almost want to go back to Hebrews 11 and rewrite the, um, the hall of faith that's found there because it doesn't have Jesus. And we know that Jesus lived by faith precisely because to do anything apart from faith is sin, and Jesus was sinless. And so, pertaining to his humanity, because he was fully man, he lived in a state of, or he trusted in the Father implicitly and explicitly throughout his life. It's such that all that he did, he did by faith in what the Father had promised him in that eternal covenant that we talked about when we were back in John. That the Father had promised him a people, and that if he uh, fulfilled this covenant in, in being their representative and dying for them and ra- being raised again, he would have this people as his people, as his bride. So we live by faith in the promise of the Father. Additionally, we see in Matthew 1, there are three women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, very rarely were women mentioned in Jewish genealogies. Okay? However, we see uh, there are four that are mentioned, and three of them were Gentiles. Chapter 2 We see the visit from the Magi. What are they? Gentiles. We see then with the the threat from Herod, the flight into Egypt, a land of Gentiles. And when they return, they don't go back to Bethlehem, but they go to Galilee, which was considered to be a fairly unclean place by a good Jew because of the presence of Gentiles. And in Matthew 4, it notes that the, this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 9 about the Gentiles seeing a great light. We see as well, Jesus has ministry to the Decapolis. And the first thing you should notice about Decapolis is that it's a Greek name, 10 cities, predominantly Gentile. And so it's easy to think that Jesus ministered only to Jewish people during his earthly ministry, but Matthew wants us to know clearly, and on no uncertain terms, that Jesus also ministered to many Gentiles. Let's continue. Matthew chapter 8, we have the healing of the centurion's servant. Now, we're not sure about the, the ethnic background of the servant. He may have been Jewish, but we don't know. But the, the centurion was a... Was a um, given credit for his faith. His faith is mentioned here. We see as well that that in Matthew 8 that two demon-possessed men are delivered and they live in Gentile territory because there are pigs nearby. A good Jew would not be near pigs because they were considered unclean animals. In Matthew chapter 10, He talks about how the the apostles are going to witness before Gentiles as well as Jews. 
In Matthew chapter 12, we see another prophecy of Isaiah, this time from chapter 42, in which his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew 15, we see a Canaanite woman who was hoping in his name by faith and receiving blessing from God. In chapter 24, we see that the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations before the end. In Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, all nations are meant to appear before this judgment seat, Jew and Gentile. And the sheep and the goats are comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Of course, it culminates in Matthew 28, where we see, in part, the uh, Davidic aspect of this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, but we also see this sense of um, the son of Abraham, go therefore and make disciples of the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so we see throughout Matthew's gospel this this drumbeat, if we're willing to listen, about it's also for the Gentiles. Also for the Gentiles. So let's hit fast forward again. Let's go back to Galatians. Paul, in the middle of Galatians chapter 3, which is the part that uh, Jerry did not read, focuses on the fact of a singular offspring in mind with the promise from Abraham. And so he's trying to develop this theological idea that Matthew has talked about in that the promise is fulfilled not just in, in Jews in general, but in the Jew, Jesus. Not the sons of Abraham by the flesh in general, but this particular son of Abraham in the flesh, Jesus. He is the one that it all centers in. He is the promised child that shall come to accomplish this great task that God has appointed for him. And so we see in the middle of of Galatians chapter 3, because remember, in Galatians... Part of the problem, just like in Rome, was there were these people who thought, yep, Jesus is important, yep, got to believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be to remain in a state of grace, you need to obey the law. And so you, need, you Gentiles need to be circumcised, and you Gentiles need to come under the Mosaic law. And so part of what Paul is arguing against is that notion here in Galatians chapter 3, just as he argued against it, Uh, in Romans 4, if you want to go back to our Reformation Day sermon, okay? Paul says here that the Mosaic Law was added after the promise, 430 years after the promise had been given to Abraham, in order to imprison people under sin that they might know their need for salvation, that they might see the sinfulness of their hearts and might cry out for a Redeemer that God was going to send. And so what we actually see taking place is this this movement from from, uh, law to transgression and therefore to curse as the consequence of the transgression. 
And so we see in one of the passages I probably quote too much lately from Galatians 3, that he became a curse for us. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, remember it was that, Oh, who bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? Wasn't Christ publicly displayed to you as crucified? Okay, that's how he starts that chapter. Placarded. The idea of a picture that is drawn. I was watching The Walking Dead. The season premiere for this year, which many have said was probably the most brutal episode, and it was the most brutal episode. And do you want to know why it was the most brutal episode? The curse. You see, uh, Rick Grimes, as the leader of a community, uh, there was another community that was parasitic. They enslaved all the other communities in the region. And so Rick, thinking of uh, their own power and their ability to fight because that's how they've stayed alive, has decided that uh, what they will do is take out that group, kill them. But he only got an outpost. He thought it was the main headquarters. It was just an outpost. And so in the season premiere this year, the curse, the penalty for their transgressions against the dictator must be paid. And so two of his friends are brutally murdered. And what really matters to me here at this point is his son is taken. Because Rick, has, Rick Grimes has not humbled himself before the dictator. He can look in Rick's eyes and he knows the hate that's there and he's not going to bend or break. And so he needs to break this man. And so he says, take this and remove your son Carl's arm. And so Carl is laid out on the ground with his arm extended. And his son is ag- his father is agonizing over whether or not to do this. The result of not doing it would be death to another member of the people he swore to protect. And what amazes me is Carl looks at his dad and says, "Do it." And just before he does it, his arm is stayed. Can you think of any biblical passage (laughs) that might be pertinent here? Genesis 22. Now, don't push this metaphor too far. God is not a cruel dictator. But he did test Abraham. He was told to offer his son. And Hebrews 11 says that by faith he did. And when, it, when he was certainly going to do it, and his arm was raised, and the knife was about to come down to slay his son, God stayed his hand and said, no. I see that you trust me. Now remember, who is Isaac? Isaac was the son of of Sarah, the only son of Sarah. He's the one through whom everything is going to come. And God was telling him to offer that son, not Ishmael, the one that we don't really care about. 
the Son. And God spared the Son of Abraham. But we see in Romans 8, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for us. He didn't say stop. And just like that, that episode from The Walking Dead, the death of Jesus was incredibly brutal. As He was beaten about the head, they didn't gently place a crown upon His head, but they mashed that crown of thorns into His skull. They stripped Him and they beat Him with a whip 39 times. And that was before all of the rest. The curse is ugly because our sin is ugly. And so Jesus, as the son of Abraham, becomes the curse in order to free us from the curse of the law that results from our disobedience. Except this son of Abraham was not spared, but was crucified. And as a result, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Jesus bears the curse that we deserve so that we get the blessing that comes freely from the hand of God. And if you don't grasp your undeserving nature, if you don't grasp the fact that you deserve the curse, then the grace doesn't really matter to you. You sort of expect it. You feel entitled until you recognize that what Jesus experienced on the cross is what I deserved. He got what I earned so that I can get what he has earned by his obedience. And so we see that the seed left home in order to become a curse, in order to make many sons of Abraham by faith. Once again, we see in verse 14 in chapter 3 of Galatians, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And so we see that he becomes the God of these Gentiles, and they become his people. More than that, they become his sons, as it talks about at the end of this chapter, and that they therefore receive the promised Holy Spirit. And so the blessings that Jesus won for us are brought to us through this Holy Spirit that comes. He doesn't come alone. He's sort of like the Grinch returning to the city, to Whoville, with all of the gifts on the sleigh. It's not just the Spirit who comes, but He comes bearing everything, everything that Jesus has won for us. And so Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, became a curse to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. So now what? 
We walk with the Father by faith like Abraham. See, as I mentioned, uh, there were some Jewish Christians who struggled with this expansion of the covenant community to bring in all these Gentiles. They wanted to make all these Gentiles Jewish. And Paul, who was called the apostle to the Gentiles, was saying, no, you've missed the point. (laughs) It's not about the law. It's about the promise. It's about faith, and it's always been about faith. But we have to recognize, for instance, Ephesians chapter 2, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so he's going to take these children of wrath, and make them sons of God in what he does. And so, he, so Paul says, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so they're sons of Abraham, not by circumcision, not by law-keeping, but by faith. True sons by faith. So as Paul begins this chapter of the letter again, it's like, how did you start? By faith. How are you supposed to continue? By faith. How are you going to finish? By faith. From faith unto faith, precisely because Abraham was the man of faith not the man of law. And so we do not start by faith and continue by law. We start, continue, and finish by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we actually see this in Abraham's life. He had faith and he walked by faith. Bruce Walke notes that to walk before God means to orient one's entire life to his presence, his promises, and his demands. And so we see that in chapter 17 of Genesis, where he says, I am your very great reward. Walk before me and be blameless. How are you supposed to do that? By faith. That's how we're supposed to walk, by faith. So there's three aspects to this. The first one is gospel promises. Remember, Abraham had these promises that he was to believe in, and we also have these gospel promises which are the basis of our faith, and the Holy Spirit comes and He reminds us of these gospel promises, uh, promises, and the Holy Spirit also helps us to believe these gospel promises. And so when we're afraid, He comes and reminds us of the Scriptures that say, do not be afraid. For I will never leave you nor forsake you. He reminds us of the Scripture, particularly the promises, so that we rest in those promises when life is difficult and when life is good. 
And so the life of faith rests upon the promises of God. It does not rest upon the works of the law. Remember, we've been adopted. And while that's a legal process, my children, the three of them whom are adopted anyway, they don't stop being my children. Well, the fourth one doesn't either. They are not my children because they obey. I am not going to cast them out and say, you are not my child and I disown you. They're mine. The first one we really wanted and worked really hard for um, <laughs> because of infertility. And the other three we chose. Not just chose to adopt, we chose those children. We had other children we could have adopted. We said, no, these ones. These are the three that we're bringing into our household. And God is the same thing, the doctrine of election. He, chooses, he chose each of His children. Not because of anything in them, in them, but because of something in Him. And they will be His children until He brings them home. So we have gospel promises. We also have gospel desires. In other words, the Holy Spirit also works within us in order to produce godly desires. And we see this in places like Philippians 2.11, where it talks about, and, um, you know, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you to will and work according to His purposes. The Holy Spirit works in us so that we have godly desires, so that we will and we work according to God's purpose. Paul talks about that a little bit to Titus in chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy, and I want, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so, just like the Grinch, we're radically changed. Now, we want to do good things because the Holy Spirit works in us. The Grinch who wanted to steal everything about Christmas, steal all the, all the, all the gifts, not because he wanted the gifts, but because he didn't want the joy down in Whoville, returns to Whoville, participates in the joy, cuts the roast beast, holds hands with the little children, and he sings the songs. He's a new man. And if you are in Christ, if you have been clothed in Christ, you are a new creation, you are a new person, and one evidence of that is now you have gospel desires. You want to worship. You want to pray. You want to read the Scriptures. You want to walk before Him and be blameless because you love Him. Just like Abraham and Jesus did by faith. Not only that, but I've added this third thing, gospel proclamation. That the Holy Spirit also works in us so that we want others to believe 
so that they may be clothed in Christ and may receive this promise that is given to Abraham for the Gentiles. We want them to participate in this great thing that has been given to us. We want to share this. And so the true sons of Abraham want others, Jew and Gentile, to also become true sons of Abraham. And so there should be something about us because of the work of the Holy Spirit that we want to share the Gospel. That we want to communicate it to our children, if we have them. But we also want to communicate it to our neighbors or our extended family. And that's produced by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, who continues to adopt. Not like those crazy people I know who can't stop adopting, you know, get like, I don't know how many kids, but he can support them all and love them all cherish them all. And so we see in conclusion that God is the in the life change business as we see when we consider the life of Abraham who starts as Abram as a barren worshiper of the moon god and God makes him, changes him into a man of faith and to a hearer of the promise, a receiver of the promise. And the core of that promise was not land or wealth But the core of that promise was, I will be their God and they will be my people. And this blessing was not just for his descendants, but it was also for the Gentiles, the nations. This seemed lost and forgotten by his people until Christ, the seed of Abraham, comes. It is in Christ who is the curse bearer that the promise comes to the Gentiles so that they too... People like you and me are sons of Abraham and sons of God himself by faith. And so we're transformed, we're changed by Christmas from children of wrath to children of God who rest in his promises, who have gospel desires, and who make that gospel known to other people because the Holy Spirit has been given to us and works in us. That is so much better than a sleigh full of toys. It is definitely something worth singing about. Let's pray. Father, help us to find, to remember to meditate upon the greater realities of Christmas so that we will indeed partake of the life transformation that Christmas represents when Jesus broke into the world as the God-man, as the son of Abraham to bring blessing to the nations, and we by faith drink of that blessing. And so I ask that the Holy Spirit would work. That if there are people here who 
walking into this building, did not believe the promise of God that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit would grant them faith, that they would believe this promise. I ask that the, that the Spirit would continue to work in those who already believe this, that we would rest more fully in these promises, uh, that we would, we would yield to these gospel desires as the Spirit produces them in us so that we become increasingly godly people. And then like the prophets, we would be like people who can't keep our mouths shut. That the, that the words of the truth would burn deep within our hearts and have to be let out so that we let, let people know about the goodness of Jesus Christ, of the mercy that is found there. Make us those people, Father, by the work of the Spirit. Because that's part of walking with You and we want to walk with You even as we recognize it's only the Spirit who gives us that. So give us that in increasing measure. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.